Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Oh, that I could speak the way Ralph Woodward's choruses sing. Thank you. You've heard, no doubt, of the hard-nosed politician who decided to attend the convention of the opposite party, sat on the back row, and was immediately asked if he would give the opening prayer. He said, no. I said, why? He said, well, in the first place, I'm not accustomed to praying for your party. And in the second place, I don't want the Lord to know I'm here. I'm in the opposite dilemma this morning. I am accustomed to pray for those who face the exacting terror of this podium. And I do want the Lord to know I'm here and in great need. Though it has not been said, I have felt from many of you the expectation that I would this morning report or relay something of the spirit of my recent visit to the Holy Land with a seasoned veteran and disciple of Christ, Elder Hugh B. Brown. It now is expected that he will be here to speak for himself three weeks hence. And I do not want except perhaps to introduce my testimony that he has a message for you that only he can deliver. I do not want, I say, to encroach upon his calling. It is in his heart to come. It is in his doctor's wish that he not. I hope you will combine your faith in behalf of his heart. It may be his last message. I would, however, this morning, I'd like to go for a moment and take you with me to a place where we were together, just he and I and his doctor, in the land known as Hebron, a place now beautifully fruitful, green has appeared on the desert and a place where, as you know, the tradition has it, there is a tomb to Father Abraham. As we approached, I, the guide, but in need of guidance, said, What are the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He thought a moment and answered in one word, Posterity. And then I almost burst out, Why then, why was Abraham commanded to go up on Mount Moriah and offer his only hope of posterity? It was clear that this man, nearly 90, had thought and 
prayed and wept over that question before. He finally said, Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. That's my text this morning. You're aware that the record speaks of the incredible promise given that Abraham would, after years of barrenness, which was in some ways to the Israelites the greatest curse of life, to bear a son, a son who would in turn bear sons and would become the father of nations. This after Abraham had left a culture where human sacrifice was performed. You're aware, too, I think, that Abraham was then counseled. And if that is too weak a word, he was commanded to take this miracle son to the mount. We often identify with him. We sometimes think less about what that meant to Sarah, the mother, and to Isaac, the son. If we can trust the Apocrypha and the Prophet taught us that there are things contained therein that are true to be recognized by the Spirit, there are three details that present narrative omits. One is that Isaac was not a mere boy. He was a youth, a stripling youth on the verge of manhood. Second, that Abraham did not keep from him, finally, the commandment or the source of the commandment, but having made the heavy journey. How heavy. He then counseled. And now comes the third point. It was Isaac who said, in effect, My father, if you alone had asked me to give my life for you, I would have been honored and would have given it. That both you and Jehovah ask only doubles my willingness. And it was at Isaac's request that his arms were bound lest involuntarily but spontaneously he should resist the sinking of the knife. Only in the Book of Mormon, though many have assumed this, but only in the Book of Mormon is a prophet found to say that that was in similitude of the Father and His only begotten Son. 
And as we later ascended the mount traditionally known as Mount Moriah, it is just inside the east wall of Jerusalem, we remembered a statement Brother Ellis Rasmussen here at BYU that one can believe that it was that same mount that another son ascended, and this time there was no ram in the thicket. I would like to say to you that scholars split widely over this account. At one extreme are those who say it could not be, it did not happen. It is an allegory. We have here a description of the internal struggle that Abraham went through trying to somehow leave behind his boyhood training in human sacrifice. God would not require such a thing. One man put it to me this way. He said, that is a terrible way to test a man. A loving God would not do it. At the other extreme are those who have held that the story, whether true to history, is nevertheless true to life, but they go further. They almost rejoice in the contradiction. They say this story illustrates that not only must faith somehow go beyond reason, faith, if it is genuine, pulverizes reason. We must be, as Kierkegaard puts it, crucified upon the paradox of the absurd. My testimony this morning is that both the rationalists and the irrationalists have misread. For in modern times we have been taught that this story doesn't simply lie in our remote past, but in our own individual future. We, says a modern revelation, must be chastened and tried, even as Abraham. Do you remember after that more than 900-mile march from Kirtland to Missouri, a march that from all mortal appearance was a failure, it achieved nothing. Someone came to Brigham Young and said, what did you get out of that fiasco? And he replied, everything we went for. And then one word, experience. He could say that because he had only within hours been with the Prophet Joseph in a meeting where the Prophet had said something like this, Brethren, some of you are angry with me because you did not fight in Missouri. But I want to tell you God did not want you to fight. He wanted to develop a corps of men who had offered their lives and been tried as Abraham. And now God has found his leaders, and those of you who are called to positions who have not made that sacrifice will be required to make it hereafter. 
As if that weren't enough, there is the record testimony of Wilford Woodruff and of John Taylor, who describe the Kirtland Temple experience, an outpouring so rich that some of them quite honestly believed that the millennium had come, that the era of peace had been ushered in filled as they were with nothing but the spirit of blessing and love. The prophet arose in that setting and said, Brethren, this is the Lord that is with us, but trials lie ahead. And brethren, and he was speaking now to the twelve, God will feel after you, and he will wrench your very heartstrings. And if you cannot stand it, you will not be fit for the kingdom of God. Well, all too prophetic was that statement. You're aware, aren't you, that half of the original Council of Twelve Later, as the prophet put it, lifted up their heel against him and against Christ. Four others were at least temporarily disaffected. There were only two, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, who did not buckle under the pressure. And they were tried, too. Now, let's look hard at the implications for now. We live in a time, do we not, when many are saying we need commitment, a total kind of commitment, a risk-everything kind of commitment. On that subject, many contemporary writers are eloquent. But on the question of to what, does one commit vagueness and often vagaries? What is the definition, someone asked me once, of a fanatic? I answered in Santayana's phrase, a fanatic is a person who doubles his speed when he's lost his direction. So be it. But then what is the name of a person who doubles and quadruples, if you will, his effort when he has found his direction? That is commitment. It is a mistake to suppose that Abraham acted in total ignorance, that his leap was a leap in the dark. If you consult the inspired version or even the King James, it's apparent that Abraham saw the Son of Man with a capital M, meaning man of holiness, the Eternal Father. He saw him, saw his day, and rejoiced. He received promises and accepted them. He was told, as our Pearl of Great Price reminds us, that he stood even before 
among the mighty and the noble and the great, that he was one of them, that he was chosen, which is, we know, more than simply called before he was born. And there therefore lingered in him a residual power of response to Christ that came out mightily in the hour of need. We have been told that we are of Abraham. We are his children. We have been taught, in fact, that those of us who have joined the Church by conversion are just as much so as those of us who, as we put it, are born under the covenant. We have been taught that the spiritual process that is to occur within us, and it isn't just a matter of changing names is a process whereby the blood itself somehow is purged, purified, and we become literally the seed of Abraham. But those who are Abraham's descendants must, says the Revelation, also bear the responsibility of Abraham. We live in a time when everybody is willing to talk about rights, civil rights, other rights and where it's rare to hear the word duty and civil duty. There never was a right, I submit, that did not have a corresponding duty. There was never a duty that did not also entail eventually a right. We talk often as if the priesthood is solely a, a privilege. It is also a burden. And many know who have lived long in this Church, there are times, sometimes lengthy, times when it is much duty and very little right. Which leads us to the statement allegedly made by the quotable J. Golden Kimball, one of perhaps a hundred he didn't say, but might have wished he had. Someone asked him how he accounted for the call of a certain brother to a certain position. He is supposed to have replied, the Lord must have called him, no one else would have thought of him. <laughs> then someone else was complaining about how difficult it was to follow a certain leader. And you see, it isn't just a matter of following the request to give a spectacular amount. What if you are called to give less than you can give? What if you're called not to be called? What if you are told only to wait for a decision and be patient? Well, someone was complaining, and Jay Golden says the legend replied, Well, some of them are sent to lead us, and some of them are sent to try us. And after the laughter and the delight of that sentiment passes, it's true. All of them, all of us, are sent to lead and to try each other. And the priesthood is given to try us to the core. Now may I speak only for a moment out of the abstractions about some modern examples, 
We have a historian who's recently been through 800 journals and diaries of our early forefathers. Two sentences leaped at me. One from John Pulsifer says, a man can be happy in a cave if it is his duty to be there. The other is an entry in the diary of John Pulsifer. He's down in the little Colorado where water is the source of all life and where irrigation is the critical survival factor. And again and again they build a dam, and about every four pages he records that the dam breaks. On about the 30th page it says only, the dam broke again. We are not discouraged. What about the Stegner article titled Ordeal by Handcart? You're aware that the Donner Party, under the terror of their trauma west of here, lapsed some of them into cannibalism. Not so with these modern human but yet superhuman saints. Some of them died in each other's arms. Some of them died with their hands frozen to the crossbar. Always with their faces west. And there is Brigham Young's weeping over the account of those three young men, Brother Huntington, Brother Grant, Brother Kimball, 18, who went with a relief party the second thousand miles to help with the Martin Company. And now they face a stream that is swollen with ice and snow. Have you ever walked even to the knee level through such water? And the pioneers almost hopelessly stand back, unable in their weakened and emaciated condition to go through. Those three boys carried every one of the company across and then crossed back, sometimes in water, up to their waists. All three from the exposure later died. And when Brother Brigham heard. He wept and then rose in the majesty of his spirit and said, God will exalt those three young men in the celestial kingdom of God. What about Brother Pratt, who had been in four states, driven from all, now had a toehold with an adobe house? in the valley. We speak so often of the arrival of the pioneers as if that ended it. No. He was called in and said, Brigham Young, Brother Pratt, we're calling you to colonize in Mexico. You will be released when you die. God bless you. He went. He was released when he died. And one of the great things that came out of that Nazareth is a man named Henry Eyring, who spoke to you only within this week. There are sacrifices, but the prophets again and again insist we ought to use a different word.
How can it be called a sacrifice to yield up a handful of dust when what is promised is a whole earth? But you see, we think we know better than God. We think that what we want for us is greater than what He wants for us. And then we simply violate the first commandment, which is to love God first and over all. And the moment the pattern is followed that He seeks out in us, that one thing or those several things that we don't really want to give up now, we don't respond. Many of us will say, I do. I don't have that kind of faith. But I submit to you, the record says that you don't have that kind of faith until you pass that test. And now we're back to the statement, the wise statement of Elder Brown. Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. What did he learn? He learned that he did love God unconditionally. Learned that God could now bless him unconditionally. Do you think his prayers had a different temper and tone after that? Do you think he could pray in faith saying, Lord, you know my heart, and the echo would say, and I know it? Do you think that when John Taylor said that the prophet taught that if God could have found a deeper way to test Abraham, he would have used that? And does Paul look back and wondered how Abraham could and have it accounted for righteousness? His conviction is that Abraham believed that Jehovah could raise his son from the dead, if necessary, in order to fulfill the promise which that sacrifice seemed to contradict. Exactly that is what God did ultimately with his own son. Now, brothers and sisters, there are all about us, quibblings, demeanings, oppositions, negations, shrinkings. But I, as one who has feet of clay that go all the way to my groin, bear my testimony this morning that it is the love of God that cries out for us to prove our love for Him. That He cannot bless us until we have been proved. Cannot even pull out of us the giant spirit in us unless we let Him. That if we come offering what we think He wants without having testimony that we are doing what He really does want, we are not yet prepared. But I bear testimony that there is also in the record evidence that joy can attend even the midst of such sacrifice. It is a sweeter, perhaps a bitter sweeter joy, but it comes 
when we know that we are acting under the will of God. There is also the testimony that he delights, he rejoices with a power that is born of the descent in pain. When we thus respond, Abraham was called the friend of God, the son of God, the father of the faithful. And modern revelation tells us that now he is a little higher than the angels. Abraham, says the revelation, sits with Isaac and Jacob because they did none other thing than that which they were commanded on thrones. And they are not angels but are gods and have entered into their exaltation. Years ago, and I have hesitated to be this personal, but will, uh, there was a moment when I became intoxicated with the idea that I could become a Rhodes Scholar. And it didn't take me long to become convinced that that was also what God wanted for me. The greatest shock of my life to that point was when I sat down after passing certain of the preliminaries with the committee and they announced two other names as going to Oxford. I was so baffled. You must be kidding. Don't you understand? This is, uh, this is for me. No, they, didn't, they didn't make a mistake. I remember giving a talk the following Sunday, I'm afraid a hypocritical talk, on prayer in the local ward where I announced that one of the great principles we had been taught that when we pray we must always say, Thy will be done, and then listen for it, that half of prayer was listening. As I said that, I heard something, a kind of an imp on my shoulder saying, You're a fine one to talk that way. You've been saying, Thy will be done as long as it's my will. For months, now you're bitter, bitter as gall. Suddenly, without any introduction that the poor audience could have understood, I said, I prophesy. A strange thing for me to say. I've never done that before. That the thing that I expected and wanted that I have been denied this week will somehow be made up to me, that what I am to do, and I don't know what that is, will somehow be better than what I thought I was to do. And then, quite confused at what I had heard, I sat down. <laughs> you know, I forgot that completely until the time came when, in circumstances I cannot relate, it became clear that I to do graduate studies at Harvard in New England, and I had forgotten any relevance in that until the hour came that suddenly, 35 years earlier than I had hoped it might occur, I was called to be a missionary again and a mission president in New England. Now, I know there are those who will say you might well have gone to England had you been able to cut the mustard and go to Oxford, and uh, it's only a coincidence. 
But I'm here this morning to say that I am convinced in my soul that was what was intended for me. And when I prayed the bitterness out and the lingering peace of the Savior in, I had nothing but gratitude. Brothers and sisters, we need today Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's. We need those who are willing to stand and, having done all, stand. We have people now and need more who can listen to the living word and the present commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ through his prophets and stand. And we are not a generation, I hope, who will be recorded as that group who grumbled about dress standards at BYU. It seems to me such trivia is beneath the dignity of our heritage, the dignity of our calling, and the potential that God has in mind to prepare the world for the future. May God help us to respond and become sons of Abraham, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.